Hi folks, I'm Liz Freeman Rosenzweig, and you're listening to the Berkeley Technology Law Journal podcast. In today's podcast, our hosts, Chante and Tony, speak with a recent champion of the Supreme Court, Simon Tam. Simon Tam was in the Supreme Court because of the name of the rock band he founded. Simon named his band The Slants as a way to reclaim a racial slur. The band members, including Simon, are of Asian descent, and they wanted to use the name to reframe cultural identities and fight stereotypes. But when the band attempted to get a registered trademark from the federal government, the application was rejected for being offensive. So Simon went to court and fought it all the way to the Supreme Court, where finally he prevailed. All nine justices supported his argument. Today, Tony and Chante discuss with Simon his Supreme Court argument and why the old requirement for trademarks to be non-disparaging failed to protect minority groups. As a heads up for potentially sensitive listeners, they'll be discussing racial epithets. Hi, Simon. Thanks for joining us today by phone. Could you give us background on how you formed your band and why you thought it was important to use the name The Slants? I formed the band um, mostly because I saw there was a distinct lack of representation of Asian Americans in the music industry. kind of inspired by that same lack of representation that I saw in Hollywood. And when I noticed that, I noticed that basically Asian Americans were facing the same kind of thing, that there were so few of us and and we weren't getting any kind of starring roles, that I wanted to change that. So that's kind of why I started The Slam. I decided to call it The Slam um, because uh, it was referring to our perspective on life as people of color. What happened from there between, you know, you starting it and you wanting to secure a trademark to protect the brand? Well, to be clear, we actually always had a trademark. What we lacked was a trademark registration since trademark rights are earned through, through use. Um, they're not granted by the government. So we were never looking for trademark rights since we had them. We just wanted the, the registration for uh, the extended benefits. Hey, Liz again, with some background information in case you're not so familiar with trademarks. What is a trademark? A trademark is some kind of recognizable sign that consumers can use to identify the source of a product or service. For example, a trademark might be the logo or mark on a product that you can use to link to a brand name. When you see a computer with an apple with a bite taken out of it, you think Apple computers. Federal registration of the trademark means you get to have the fancy little R in a circle next to your mark, and more importantly, if someone messes with your trademark, you get more tools to sue them. Okay, back to the discussion. Um, but in the two years that kind of span between the, the genesis of the band and our initial application, um, we were doing what bands do, um, or at least bands with an activist kind of driven mindset. So um, touring, we wrote and released three records by the, by the time we filed. We helped raise money for charities, raised about a million dollars for Asian American uh, organizations, uh, got, got in, you know, led anti-racism workshops on behalf of the U.S. government. You know, and we worked with over 140 social justice organizations. So there, there was like these relationships being established that's kind of what we did. Mm-hmm. What exactly was the trademark office's original argument against granting you that registration? The initial rejection was based off an old bit of law called Section 2.8 of the Lanham Act. And that law states that registrations cannot be granted for marks that are considered scandalous, immoral, or disparaging. And it's not just what anybody considers disparaging. In fact, they said only the reference group only their perspective matters, and they have to find that a substantial composite of the reference group 
find the search. So in their case, uh, when they when they rejected my application, they actually couldn't find a single Asian American who was offended by our name, despite having 17 million of us. They instead relied on UrbanDictionary.com, photographs of Miley Cyrus pulling her eyes back in like a slant or chink eye gesture. Mm-hmm. Scholarly sources. These are these are things we all study in law school and cite <laughs> regularly. <laughs> Urban Dictionary. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, it's, uh, and then uh, they quoted uh, another wiki joke website called AsianJokes.com. And that, that was all they had. And so when we kind of fought back, we used actual signed legal declarations of executive directors of numerous well-regarded API organizations. And we had dictionary experts and independent national surveys conducted by professors with like <laughs> multiple textbooks under them on surveying techniques. Yeah. And that was one of the first times that uh, the Patent and Trademark Office was confronted with that type of evidence. Isn't that right? Uh, yeah, it was the second time. The other, only other time was in Harjo v. Pro Football, better known as the Washington Redskins case. And in that case, they found 36.6% of Native Americans found the name to be highly disparaging. However, um, the Trademark Office said 36.6% was not considered a substantial deposit. In, in our case, our our survey showed that eight, possibly up to 16% of Asian Americans found it disparaging. We are well under that 36% threshold. They, the problem is they don't, they don't actually define what substantial composite means. In the other case, it was considered a, not a substantial composite. In our case, they said, oh, 8% is a substantial composite. So they changed the standards on us as we were kind of fighting right. the case. Yeah. And in the historically, the Patent and Trademark Office had, uh, you know, issued registrations to things like Heeb Media and Dykes on Bikes, which might be offensive to uh, a higher percentage of, of folk. Did you have any understanding of why those registrations were granted and yours? You presented all this evidence and they kind of ignored it. But it's subjective in nature. And the thing is, like, for example, with Heeb Media, they were approved for the magazine, but when they applied for registration for T-shirts and events, they were rejected. Mm-hmm. In the case of Dykes on Bikes, they actually were initially rejected, mm-hmm. and they appealed for almost a decade. In fact, they had to write a letter directly to the, um, the commissioner, the, the former director of the USPTO, and it was only then that they got the objection uh, withdrawn. But neither of those organizations had the actual hard data that you presented. They didn't have surveys, that's correct. But it, it just shows that it, it's up to the whim of the examining attorney and whoever their supervisor is. If, if they say, well, I got a gut feeling that this is not good or this is offensive, mm-hmm. uh, or I, I personally experienced this once, then they make that decision on behalf of the country, right. uh, essentially without any data. When you ask them, they say, well, we don't have the resources to conduct a survey or to do any kind of extensive analysis. So therefore, they have to rely on um, these kind of common sources like, you know, Googling first thing that pops Mm -hmm. up or or that sort of thing. And you mentioned on behalf of the country, it's even more paternalistically on behalf of the group that they purport that they're trying to protect. They're saying that these things are offensive. Yeah. I mean, it's obvious that they enjoy a certain Mm -hmm. sense of privilege. And they, in their minds, they are sincere in thinking that they are doing marginalized groups a favor, saying, like, oh, well, we understand your needs. We want to mm-hmm. protect you. But the reality is far from it. I mean, for example, when I, after we presented survey evidence, dictionary evidence, and all this other stuff that they've never, <laughs> never was brought to the table before, they gave me a new deadline, and it happened to coincide with the um, anniversary of Executive Order 9066, which is the date that 
that the U.S. government thought it'd be a great idea to round up all people of yeah. Japanese descent, yeah. even if they're American, and put them in concentration camps. And it's like, there's no, like, <laughs> they don't know that they right. well, but oh, I yeah. certainly do. Right. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Dissonant. Okay, so then after you, you know, tried to present all this evidence, you still got another bad decision. How did you and your lawyer decide to strategize to sort of pivot and frame this in another way? We actually switched attorneys because my attorney who had been with me for the first two years left private practice. Mm -hmm. He basically said, as long as you say you're not disparaging to yourself, you're not going to win because nobody has ever won uh, on appeal for a 2A rejection ever. Mm -hmm. And so we we got a new attorney. We switched tactics and applied for what's called an ethnic neutral application. In other words, there's nothing about it that suggested we were of Asian descent. Mm -hmm. Uh, He thought, slamming in many different things, perhaps perhaps we'll get a different examining attorney who doesn't see it as a potential uh, slur. We got the exact same examining attorney who <laughs> copied and pasted his previous response right. into the current yeah. application. And so for the next two years, the appeal was on the procedural and evidentiary mm-hmm. issues. That, uh, one, that the evidence was actually spiked, cherry-picked results. And two, that, that he actually violated the procedures manual by in fact, not conducting a fresh search on, on the mark, right. uh, which he's supposed to. The associated attorney at that time, as we were going into the federal circuit, so basically once we got past the TTAB with the Trademark Trials and Appeals Board, he decided to throw in the First Amendment argument mm. to just basically hold, hold it uh, to save it for the future. They, no one in their mind thought it would ever go there. They all thought it's all going to be procedural and evidentiary because that's that's what the um, federal circuit cares about. And they thought possibly, maybe they might care about the equal protection issues of the trademark office denying us the right precisely because we're Asian. But the court didn't care about any of those things. So they just picked up on the few paragraphs about the First Amendment and decided to run with that. Yeah. Um, and as the litigation is ongoing and things are directing more towards the First Amendment, did you and your lawyer have conversations about potential meanings of a victory, especially on appeal at the Supreme Court? Well, we talked about it as we were going into the federal circuit unbunked, because by then the court said, hey, we're only limiting this to one question. Mm-hmm. Does 2A violate the First Amendment? And we did talk about it for a while. I also spoke with the kind of senior attorney at the ACLU who also argued before a case um, at the Federal Circuit and filed an amicus brief. And that's when I realized that no amount of cultural competency that I was requesting would ever come from the government. That if you give them the power to make up the rules, that the, the privileged and dominant groups would find a way around those rules and, and continue to basically trample on the rights of marginalized folks who do not have the resources of appealing their way through a very complex and frankly outdated system of mm-hmm. law. And because we have examining attorneys who are under quota, who have less than an hour, maybe two hours to go through an application, they're not going to take the time to actually look at the intention of the mark, of how it's being used in the marketplace. And certainly they're not going to look at how perceived underprivileged groups might uh, experience that mark. You know, I, I just kept thinking, like, well, if this, if this whole intent, like, if the the greatest kind of counter-argument to my case is that if I win, that might allow the Washington football team to win yeah. uh, their case, I thought it's still, it doesn't, the ends don't justify the means. Because, say, Harjo or Black Horse was successful, and 
the Washington football team's registrations were canceled, they would not be obligated in the least bit to change their name. Like, if the goal was to get them to stop using human beings as mascots, with these rating kind of logos and, and blurs as team names, that would not actually achieve its goal. And so the, we can't be so obsessive trying to punish folks like Dan Snyder who are willing to say that the collateral damage should be experienced by marginalized groups trying to reappropriate and claim their identity. Right. To me, that is not an acceptable loss. For, Absolutely. For you alluded to this earlier when you mentioned that you already had trademark rights prior to registering the name The Slant. So can you sort of walk... Um, some of our listeners that may not be as attuned to trademark law as you are, can you sort of walk them through why canceling the Redskins' registration would not have required them to change their name? Well, um, it's kind of like what the maybe the strongest argument that the government had was also their weakest when they were arguing against me. They said, hey, you can still use the name, you just don't need the registration. Yeah. And And that is true. But when we think about things like justice and equity, we have to realize that some people have more power and more rights than others. An established football franchise that has billions of dollars of advertising behind it and almost a century of market permutation is going to have substantial trademark rights compared to, say, a nonprofit group or a band. The football team would not have suffered great financial loss at all because they already have so they've built up so much trademark equity. They could have they could protect their name without the registration, without any issue whatsoever. Even even at customs or you know dealing with knockoff merchandise and that kind of thing, they could have easily enforced their trademark rights. And that accrual of equity is always going to favor dominant groups. Correct, groups that have been established for some time, and we know which identities and which groups in this country have been established longer, who have wealth and power and influence, mm-hmm. and that's why. Dan Snyder wasn't put in it. He's like, go ahead, cancel it. I'm not going to change the name because he knew it would not affect him. So something that you talked to earlier that, you know, this paternalism of the United States government has failed. But, you know, a lot of people reacting to your case expressed a lot of concern for minority groups. So I just wanted to hear what your reaction was for that in terms of whether there is more of a, of a threat or potential harm to minority groups from your perspective or um, what might be a better alternative. I don't. I don't think there are any greater threats. I mean, and I say that for for two reasons. First of all, as a person of color, my greatest threats, my greatest challenges in life, don't come from people using racial slurs or using offensive language. They come from systemic and institutionalized discrimination. Like, what's worse, someone calling me a slam or possibly a chink, or the government saying you're too Asian to get this registration? To me, that's far more, far more uh, dangerous. Right. And the second part of that is that people don't need trademark registration to use offensive language. I, I've been called many things in my life, and not once has everyone, anyone said, hold on a second, let me go through a process and apply my trademark registration before I call you this. <laughs> yeah. Right. They just go ahead and right. do it. And, and the reality is that if... If people really want to go through the process and, and register trademarks, I'm going to have to go for it because that means that they have to put money into it. That means they have to release their personal contact information, mm-hmm. and that means there will actually be accountability. And like, I'd rather have 
know my enemy rather than have anonymous threats to my right. door. Yep. I'd rather know exactly where they are, how they conduct their business, so there's a way to fight right. it. And speaking of fighting it, you have a, a TED Talk out there um, that discusses community building as a way to fight racism. How do you think this particular victory advances that philosophy? I, I mean, I think it's a couple different ways, but at the end of the day, we have to realize that one of the things I'm most proud of in terms of my case is that there was bipartisan support, mm -hmm. yeah. that it was a unanimous victory at the Supreme Court, that we were actually able to bring together groups like the ACLU and the Cato Institute and have them agree on mm -hmm. something. <laughs> yeah. it, it shows that you know there are certain core values that we have as Americans that we can all agree on regardless of our philosophical or political stripes that we might mm -hmm. have and that as a country we need to focus more on shared values because we don't have different values we have different interpretations of the same values like we all care about the state of our communities and families uh, some people just believe you know that safety comes from gun ownership whereas other people believe in restrictions of mm -hmm. it's like okay let's begin from that conversation of shared values not the differences that divide us and and that's how we can build communities the second part of it is that the trademark office is trying to, to its very best to use these positive intentions. Like, oh, we're doing positive things by trying to reduce the amount of hate speech out there. We're trying to uh, prevent uh, these kinds of things from, you know, from, from you seeing them in the marketplace or that kind of thing. We have to realize that intention is not enough. We actually have to look at the impact. What is the social impact of a particular bit of law? Because if the impact is being experienced by marginalized groups, then it doesn't matter what your intention yeah. is. And I'm, I'm pretty sure slave owners thought they were had good intentions when they had house slaves, but it did not mean that they weren't slaves. Exactly. Um, you know, it, it, the government could, for me, for them to say to me that, oh, you can still use the mark, you just can't get the registration, it echoes all the other kind of second-class citizen arguments that they've made over the years. Like, you can still ride the bus, you just have to sit in the yeah. back. Or you can still get the civil benefits of a union, you just can't get a marriage certificate from the government. Mm -hmm. And that, that kind of thing is degrading for folks who are already experiencing other kinds of discrimination in other facets of their life. So, Simon, one of the ways we got to meet you was you came and spoke at a local American Constitution Society event. And we're just curious, um, what do you see as your mission? And as you tour, you're making stops to law schools. Um, could you tell us what's your goal behind doing that? I mean, for me, I want people to see the humanity and the nuance and context that these laws, like how they're experienced by people. It's too easy to get lost in legal briefs. and kind of out, outdated bits of law or case law or forget that these are actual human beings involved in it and what that might be like. I mean, like my very well-intentioned attorneys who are working very hard and working for free, like pro bono, would still do, you know, I, I mean, also responsible for legal fees, but they would do legal maneuvers and say, well, hey, we're going to try this particular thing. We, It's probably not going to work. We're just going to throw it in there as like a shot in the dark. Mm -hmm. And like, the intention's great, but I'm like, hey, that like shot in the dark thing just cost me thirty five hundred dollars in yeah. a color printer, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or, or, or I had to do like a Lexus fee. Like, I, I mean, it's all those things, and it's just not even, you know, for them. They're like, we're doing this for free. It's just the, you know, the fee, right. no big yeah. deal. 
but I don't realize like what does that look like for the person on the other end who you know is struggling. I mean, the reason why I'm pro bono is because I can't afford their hourly rate. So why could I afford you know all these other things? It's it just easy to forget that. And so I wanted to remind folks that that it looks a little bit more complex on the other side. And I also wanted to remind people that we don't have to go through life and we don't have to accept the status quo as if that's the only way to do things. I wanted to pre- present a new perspective in how we can approach law, one that begins with a viewpoint of the most vulnerable members of our society and not, you know, we should build our laws around them to lift them up rather than building laws that try and punish uh people who abuse their civil liberties. That certainly shined through in your presentation. We've definitely talked a lot about that. So Simon, that's that wraps it up for us. Thank you again so much. Do you want to tell our listeners where they can find you online? Uh, if they're interested in my personal writing and activism, they can go to simonsam.org or for more information on the band, uh, theslants.com. Thanks for joining today's podcast. Today's episode was brought to you by Chante Westmoreland and Tony Beadle, with production help from me, Liz Freeman Rosenzweig. We are committed to bringing you interesting conversations involving the intersection of technology and the law. If you enjoyed our podcast, please subscribe and rate us on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you found our podcasts so we can reach other listeners. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions for a show, please contact our editor, Tony, at B-E-D-E-L at berkeley.edu. The views expressed by podcast hosts and guests are their own and do not represent the views of any other person or organization. The information presented is not legal advice, is not to be acted on as such, may not be current, and is subject to change without notice.